The book of Genesis. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 1 as we talked about the nature of gender. I think that's a good place to start as we're dealing with bravery in our new world. Today we're going to look at another topic, another important uh, aspect of creation and what God has given us and what God would have us live out in this world. And it's the topic of marriage. It's a topic that's as old as time, and yet today it's a controversial subject and it's something that we need wisdom on. So turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up today. And as you're turning to Genesis 2, let me just start this way. A few years ago, if you remember, the, the state of Illinois actually issued a public apology to the Mormon church. Do you all remember this? This was several years back, probably about 10 or 15 years and they apologized for, the, for the, what happened to their leader, Joseph Smith, and, and actually the expulsion of the Mormons out of our state. If you didn't know this, the Mormons actually settled in Illinois in a city not far from here called Nauvoo, Illinois. And, you know, there was, um, it was a large growing movement led by somebody named Joseph Smith. And, you know, they caused some controversy in our state. There was actually a militia that was put together and Joseph Smith was arrested and he was attacked while he was in jail in Carthage, Illinois. And he was shot dead by a vigilante mob, actually. It wasn't our state's best moment, but I mean, it was the frontier world and things like that happened. And so recently as a state, we apologized to the Mormon church for all those things that took place. And actually, we, we drove the Mormons out of Illinois and they went with Brigham Young to Utah. But so we apologize for that. But what you weren't told about in that report, I'll tell you. What you weren't told is that Joseph Smith was a con man and an agitator. He had actually raised a militia in Illinois and had preached violence against non-Mormons in our state. He actually set up a bank that issued notes that were worthless in order to get money to finance the Mormon temple. You can still go see the Mormon temple today in Nauvoo, Illinois. And he also went around preaching heterodox doctrines, things like God is actually a man with flesh and that we are actually gods. Someday we will become gods. And although Joseph Smith started out as a, as a Methodist and he had orthodox beliefs at first, he gravitated towards his own brand of religion that made, made no sense, honestly, in terms of orthodox, orthodox Christianity. And also he began saying that he was getting direct revelations from God and these direct revelations were actually things that he used to manipulate people. And he was, he was a very charismatic person, but he was also a deceitful person. One of the reasons that Illinoisans were leery about the Mormon church and leery about Joseph Smith is because he had this supposed vision while he was in Illinois that God wanted him to legalize and propagate polygamy. And so he started to marry other women than his wife. He actually had up to 40 different women that he married in his life. Some of these women were quite young, teenagers even. Some of these women were already married to other men. And he promised these women that, you know, if he came and married him, that they would someday have their own planets and populate planets throughout the world. Do you think views like that might get you killed by a vigilante group, especially in a frontier world? 
Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And this is not a sermon about Mormon theology, though, or about the Mormons. I'll deal with that some other time. This is actually, this is actually a sermon about marriage. Why is polygamy, as Joseph Smith articulated it, why is polygamy not God's best for your life? What's ironic, too, is that, you know, that we, we thrust the, the uh, Mormons out of Illinois and they went to Utah and eventually they wanted to start a state, but our government made them renounce polygamy in order to become a state. That same government, 120 years later, actually made a play to legalize same-sex marriage. If I was a Mormon, I'd be furious by that. That, that hypocrisy, at least in a polygamy, polygamous relationship, you can procreate. You can't do that in a same-sex marriage. That's not something that is legitimate in the eyes of the Lord. But this is not a, mar- this is not a sermon on same-sex marriage either or, you know, whether or not it's merited or not merited. We've covered that before. This is not a sermon on polygamy either. This is a sermon... Here it is. This is a sermon about marriage as God intended it. The good gift of God God, that God has given us called marriage. And and here's the thing, too. I mean, I could stand up this morning and I could talk for 45 minutes and decry all of these perversions of marriage that are out there, whether it be polygamy or same-sex marriage or adultery marriage, all of these bad things. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to do something else instead. I want to hold up for you. This good gift that God has given us called marriage and let you fixate on that good gift. Kind of like what my pastor did for me when I was a young man and I was transfixed as he gave us this vision of how good marriage could be and and how God created it to be good. That's what I want to do for you this morning. And if I do that rightly, You know, if we embrace the right view of marriage, all of these other perversions, all of these other things that fall short will fall by the wayside of the goodness of marriage and what God has given us. That's my goal for today. That's what I want to do. So here you go. Here's your outline for today. I want to give you three answers to this question. What does the Bible teach about marriage? What does the Bible teach about marriage? Here's the first thing. Very simply, marriage is God's doing. God did this. God created marriage. And let's look at Genesis 2, where we see the first marriage, the first woman, and actually the first recorded words of mankind in human history. We'll see that in just a second. You know, when you get into Genesis 2, we looked at Genesis 1 last week. Genesis 2 is more the micro view of God's creation of mankind, man and female, male and female. Genesis 1 is more of the macro view. You have God creating the entire world and and all of these uh, amazing things that God put in place, creating ex nihilo, out of nothing. Genesis 2 is a little more intimate, gets a little more involved in the creation of male and female, Adam and Eve, and actually you can even see that in the terminology that's used in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, it was Elohim, that was the name for God. In Genesis 2, Moses uses a different term for God, Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God, that's, that's the covenant God of the Israelites who initiates relationships with his, with his created beings. So we, we even see that this is going to be a more intimate account of God's creation. And we see in verse 7 that Yahweh Elohim 
This, this covenant God of the Israelites, the Lord God, he created Adam, the first man. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Adam means dust. Adam means ground. It means dirt. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is unlike all the other creative work that God did on the sixth day with the other animals. God handcrafted, so to speak, Adam, unlike the other creatures of the world. Then, skip down to verse 14, God took Adam he, he plopped Adam down in this Garden of Eden that he created. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Whenever I read this in Genesis 2, I, I think of like my, my Wii console where you like create a little me character and then you pick him up and then you put him down. That's kind of like what I see here. God just kind of picks up Adam with his little legs dangling and he sets him down in the Garden of Eden, this lush garden, to take care of it. And if you remember from Genesis 1, you know, God, God gave man dominion over the world. And so as part of that dominion, dominion Adam starts to work. He, he works the garden. He keeps it. It's good for man to work, right? Can I get an amen on that? It's good for men to work. And, and work, too, I've said this before, work is a pre-fall institution, by the way. Work is a good thing, and it's, it's not something that we should despise or begrudge. Even Adam worked in the Garden of Eden, even though we know now that it's cursed as a result of the fall, Genesis 3. And everything in the Garden of Eden, so, so God takes man, he takes Adam, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden. And everything that we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 so far, it has been good, 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 right? This is good, and that's good, and this is good, and that's good, and everything's good. And, and, you know, Adam, who could have it better than Adam? He's got good stuff. He's got fulfilling work. He's got good food. He's got, you know, this relationship with God, fellowship with God. He's got dominion over the earth. It's good, 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 good. Except that it's not all good. And there's this place, this interesting place in the middle of Genesis 2 where it's not good. What's not good, Pastor Tony? Look at verse 18. God says, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs somebody. He needs a helpmate. So he says, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, what's God saying here? Man needs marriage. He, he needs a companion. He needs a counterpart. He needs a helper to do things like procreate. But also man needs help raising children. He needs help. He needs somebody he can share life with and grow old with. And it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper. Now, just a few comments on verse 18. I want to be clear about this. Listen up, everybody. When, when, God says, when God says man needs a helper fit for him, God is not saying that man needs a maid. Okay? That is not what this means. And neither does God mean that man needs a servile counterpart to him. To assume that is to misunderstand the text. The word for helper in Hebrew is this great word, azer, which I referenced last week. It's actually a word that's used for God. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 7, God is called an azer, a helper of Israel. In places like Exodus 18, verse 4, throughout the Psalms, David actually in the Psalms calls God his azer, his helper. 
Psalm 70, verse 6. David says, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. You are my azer and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Some of you might have heard this before. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Y'all heard that before? From where does my azer come? My help, my Isaiah, comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. So all that to say this, that this word helper, this, this reference to this, this counterpart that God creates for Adam, that's, that's a word of, of strength. That's a word of honor, of respect. And by the way, this, this passage here in Genesis 2, it equates, it equates the sexes, sexes. There's an equality among the sexes. The Hebrew says, I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, I will make a helper comparable to Adam and suitable for him. We already looked last week at Genesis 1 where God created male and female as image bearers. He created them in his image, both male and female in his image. So let's be clear about this. What does it mean for man to have a helper? What does it mean for a woman to be a helper to a man? Let me just flesh this out a little bit. I'll give you three categories. Adam, first of all, Adam needed help to procreate. God didn't design man to procreate by splitting in half like an amoeba or some single-celled organism to split in half, then duplicate. We are not like starfish, right? Covered that last week. I don't think I need to get into that again. We, we, God created gender, male and female, both brought them together in order to procreate. Adam needs help to procreate. Secondly, God wanted, God wanted man to have a helper to share life experiences with, to fellowship with. And I actually think this derives from God's character. One of the things about God, you need to know this, God is a Trinitarian being, right? God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we learned about God is that God has had fellowship amongst himself forever, for eternity past and on into eternity future. So even before God created any of us, it's not like God was lonely and he needed somebody. No, he had fellowship amongst himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think, too, that, that marriage, God's like, I want you to have a little taste of that. Male, female, I want you to, to, to sense what that's like to have fellowship in relationship with one another like God has relationship amongst himself. And then thirdly, God wanted man to have a helper to help him rule the planet. So procreation, fellowship or relationship, and then also somebody to help him with dominion, someone to help him work the garden and take care of it and raise children. But I don't even know, honestly, if Adam felt this need. I mean, Adam, at this point in Genesis 2, he's just a few hours old. I don't think he, I don't even know if he knows he needs this. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. But God knows that he needs this. And God knows that you need this, even in this post-fall world. And that's why God has given us the good gift of marriage. And by his grace, he has given us men help mates. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Let me just say a few things personally about this for a second. You know, Sonia Knight. Sonny and I have been married for 19 years, going on 20. And I just want to testify, if I could, this morning for you as your pastor, that Sonia has been a wonderful help to me in my life. And I hope that that's true the other direction as well. 
Now, Sonia, Sonia, I'll just, just give you some examples of that. Sonia's good at hospitality. I didn't even know what hospitality was when I was single. And she's helped me to be more hospitable. Sonia's good at discernment. She helps me with that. She has wisdom to offer. Sonia's good at other things, too. I mean, practical stuff. She's good at, she's good at doing taxes. That's helpful. She's good at making furniture. That's helpful. And God has created our marriage. Let me just testify for myself. God has created our marriage in such a way that, that there is a leveraging of our strengths and our abilities for the benefit of both of us and for the world as well and the church. And I praise God for that. And also another thing, there's, you know, as you think about marriage and, and helping and loving, there's an emotional stability that is possible in marriage that God that God gives, a, gives it to us as a good gift. When I am down, when I'm discouraged, Sonia can lift me up. When Sonia is discouraged and down, I can lift her up. When we're both discouraged at the same time, we can pray together and encourage one another. And that is such a good gift. That is such a wonderful thing that God has given us. There's an emotional stability that comes in marriage. Do marriages always work like that? No, unfortunately, sometimes married couples tear each other down more than they lift each other up. And that's not the way that God intended it. In fact, in Ephesians 5, as Paul talks about marriage, he talks about it in the context of building one another up. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as the, as the church does to Christ. Love each other, build each other up in marriage. Respect one another, love one another, die to yourself for one another. That's the way that God wants us to live out our marriages. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Marriage is God's doing, but let me say this as well. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is God's design. Let's get back to Genesis 2. This is, this is so good. Church, this is so good. Watch what happens. God... All right, God knows man needs help. He's in the garden, you know, he, he needs help. And so God says it's not good for man to be alone. So what does God do? Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. See Genesis 1 for more on that. And so God brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name, the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, this is key, look at this, the end of verse 20, there was not found a helper, an Azer fit for him. Adam had, hands down, the best job in the history of the world. I mean, he already had a great job. He takes care of the Garden of Eden, which kind of just takes care of itself. But now in addition to that, he gets to call the animals by name. You are a hippopotamus. You are a kangaroo. You are Tyrannosaurus. You are the duck-billed platypus. I bet he took a while to name that one. What is that thing? And, and, and there was something else going on here. God brought these animals to him, and there's, there's you know, is this going to work? Is this a helper? Is this fit for him? And so Adam had to decide, is, are, these, are these my helpers? And so Adam took a look at the, the eagle, and he's like, no, that, that's, that's not going to work. And Adam took a look at the cat, and he said, no way, that is not my helper. 
And then Adam took a look at the dog. And Adam liked the dog. And he said, you can be man's best friend, but you cannot be my helper. And so God just keeps bringing these animals. He brings the elephant, and he brings the moose, and he brings the crocodile, and he brings the buffalo. And Adam says, no, 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 no. Too impractical, too implausible, too large, too small, too hairy, too beastly, too unlike me. They don't look like me. And, and I actually read somewhere, someone speculated that God brought these animals to Adam in pairs, kind of like he did with Noah during that time. And, and so as these animals were coming to Adam, you know, he saw the lions already have lionesses and the tigers already have tigresses and the bulls already had heifers and the bucks already had does. They already had their mates that were like them and added, Adam started to long for something that was like him. And I can imagine after hours and hours of naming animals, Adam began to sink into despair. If there was such a thing called despair in the Garden of Eden. And Adam said, there's, there's no one like me. These animals aren't fit for me. Everyone has their counterpart except for me. Everyone has, the, has a way to obey God's commandment. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I don't have someone that can help me do that. You see, when God created the animals, you can see this in Genesis 1, God created the animals in swarms. He created them in herds. And Adam was the only creature that, that God, so to speak, handcrafted and put together. We were talking about this in our small group on Thursday night. He was handcrafted by God, unlike the other animals, and he was differentiated from the other animals of the earth. So Adam's counterpart, whoever his helper was going to be, he needed to be different from the animal creatures too. She needed to be handcrafted just like Adam was handcrafted. Everybody with me so far? So watch what God does. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. Adam has a deep need. God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And while Adam slept, the Lord God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. God did a little bit of supernatural surgery here. God was the first surgeon and the first anesthesiologist. He puts Adam to sleep and he removes flesh and bone. And then he, he sutures him up while he's sleeping. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Literally, he built into a woman. He designed into a woman. Eve was handcrafted just like Adam was handcrafted. They were like each other now. And you know what? I like to say from time to time, you guys have heard me say this, you know, man is the greatest of God's created beings, the last thing, the pinnacle of his creative work. But you know what? Technically, that's not true. Man is not the last and greatest thing that God made. Woman is the last and great thing that God made. He made her last. And look at the end of verse 22. Look what he does next. And the Lord brought her to the man. It's as if God is like the father of the bride walking his daughter down the aisle and presenting her to her husband. This is really a very tender moment in the scriptures. This is the first marriage. This is where marriage comes from. 
And watch what happens next. Look at verse 23. These are actually the first words that man speaks in the Bible. I think that's significant. I mean, he named the animals. He certainly talked before this, but this is the first time he talks in the scriptures. And Adam, his bride, comes to him. And it says, verse 23, then the man said, this at last, no more hairy animals. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was literally bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Maybe he was still hurting from the surgery that God did, knowing that that God took of him and made her. And so he cries out, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha is the Hebrew because she was taken out of Ish, Ish, Isha. I'm so glad that the English actually preserves this word play because, because we're alike, man and woman, but we're different. Woman was taken out of the man. We have, we have Ish and we have Isha. We have man and we have woman. We're more like each other than we are like the animals, but we are different from each other as well. And that's what, that's what Adam signifies here with this statement. I am Ish, you are Isha. I am man, you are woman. You were taken out of me. It's one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible, and I, I, I remember my pastor preaching on this when I was a kid. It just locked something in my mind, and I was enamored by this picture of marriage that God paints in the book of Genesis. And I love this response from Adam. I mean, you can't, you can't read tone in the Bible. You can't, you can't you know, sense the emotion of a person, but I mean, I guess you can sense it. But, but you can't hear it here. But, but I'll just tell you right now, I don't see Adam reciting this statement, making this statement in monotone as he sees Eve for the first time. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I guarantee you he didn't say it that way. There's exuberance as he sees his wife for the first time, there is joy, there is delight, there is jubilation. I mean, really, in Hebrew, this is, this is poetry. At the first words that man speaks are poetry. And you know, when, when men find the woman of their dreams, they're likely to recite poetry. That happens even now. And he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She, she belongs to me. She is my life. She is my wife. She is... She's part of me in a wonderful way that no other creature could possibly be. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift. Right? I said something like that when I found my wife. Thank you for this good gift, Lord. And Adam's emotions here, they're they're probably more elevated than any other man's in the history of the world because there's no sin at this point. There's no jealousy. There's no pride. And I think they're more elevated than any person in in the history of the world, too, because Adam at this point has not even seen another human being. He doesn't have parents. He doesn't have uncles and aunts. This is the first time he looks at somebody and he says, you look like me and I look like you and you're, you're perfect for me. The closest thing in my life to something like this, because I, I did have parents, the closest thing that I can remember to something even like this wasn't when I met Sonia for the first time, but It was when I saw my son for the first time coming out of that womb and I I looked at him and I was like, wow, he looks like me. His ears look like my ears. 
and his chin looks like my wife's chin and his his crooked little fingers look like my crooked little fingers some of y'all remember that it's just marvel that somebody that looks like you and that's what happens to adam And that's what he rejoices in. Now look at verse 24. Here's how the design of marriage comes together. I want you to see this. Because Moses is the author of this text, right? Moses is conveying something to the Israelites in the the wilderness before they enter into the promised land. He's trying to tell them something about marriage and how it was created. And it was just as true for the Israelites and Moses 3,500 years ago as it is for us. And, And Moses... After reciting these things in verse 34, Moses does a little editorializing. He says something about this. So Adam's done talking at the end of verse 23, and he's off to enjoy his wife in the Garden of Eden. Now in verse 24, Moses says something to us, and he says, therefore, because of this, because of how God created marriage, therefore, in light of what you've seen here, A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. That's how I first heard it as a kid. And they shall become one flesh. And all the Israelites who read this for the first time, they were like, aha, so that's where marriage came from. That's why we do this thing. That's why we have this desire to marry one person and to have children. By the way, there's some strong language here. That word leave, man shall leave his father and mother. In verse 34, that's the Hebrew word azav, which is typically translated abandoned or forsake. So you you forsake. And, And here's how I know this wasn't written for Adam and Eve or wasn't said by Adam, but written by Moses. Adam didn't have parents to forsake. So so Moses wanted us to know. I think the Lord knew that there were some some mama's boys out there and some daddy's little girls who needed to hear this even in our day man shall leave their father and mother man shall leave and cleave and and create a nuclear family on his own with his wife her with her spouse that's the way God created marriage it's his design the author and the cynic Ambrose Bierce he said this once you can read this on the screen He said, love is temporary insanity, curable by marriage. It's kind of cynical, isn't it? I like this better. Martin Luther said this. He said, there is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Luther said of his wife, my Katie is in all things so obliging and pleasing to me that I would not exchange my poverty for the riches of Croesus. And, you know, Luther, if you read Luther, he also alludes to the fact that he learned more in marriage than he ever learned in a monastery. Learned more about life, learned more more about his selfishness, his need for Christ in marriage than he ever learned as a monk. And some of you might be familiar, too, with the the evangelist D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, he spent the bulk of his adult life traveling and, and preaching to large crowds, And yet, despite his blistering pace and traveling all over the place, members of his own family said no man ever paid greater homage to his wife than Mr. Moody. I never met with a happier couple. What was it that D.L. Moody understood that Ambrose Bierce didn't? What was it that Martin and Katie Luther understood that others before them and after them didn't understand? 
I think they understood Genesis 2. I think they understood the goodness of marriage and the good gift that God has given us in marriage. They had a desire to make the most of it. And here's another thing that I know Martin Luther understood. You can write this down as number three in your notes. Yes, marriage is God's doing. Yes, marriage is God's design. But this also, and I want y'all to get this this morning. Marriage is also God's display. Marriage is God's display. Let's look at the New Testament now. You know, when Jesus talks about marriage, by the way, he quotes Genesis 2. He goes back to the beginning of the beginning and quotes Genesis 2. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 5. And yet one of the things that we learn in the New Testament is that marriage, this creation, this thing that God has created, is bigger than just the momentary marriage that you have, than just the temporary marriage you have with your spouse. I've been married 19 years. Some of y'all have been married 40 years, 50 years, longer than that. George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush were married for something like 70 years together. And that's a long time, but, but I want y'all to know that is momentary. That's not going to last on into eternity. But there is a marriage that lasts forever. Marriage, what we're doing right now, This is something that is a picture of something bigger and greater and more powerful than we can realize. If that intimidates you right now, you should be intimidated. If you're thinking like, well, I better better do a better job as a married person. Yeah, that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. In fact, in Ephesians 5 verse 31, the apostle Paul says this. He says, quoting Genesis 2, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul was encouraging his church in Ephesus, just like I'm trying to encourage you. He goes to Genesis 2. I went to Genesis 2. But then Paul does this, and Paul's writing scripture. I'm not. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound. Speaking of the marital relationship. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of marriage is profound. What, why is it profound? What's the mystery? What's he talking about that there? Here's how it's profound. Human marriage is temporary. Human marriage is momentary. Our marriage to Christ is eternal. And that marriage will last forever and ever and ever in the presence of the Lord. When you are married, and, and I say this too when I officiate marriages, weddings, when you come together, you are enacting something, something great. Husbands loving your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives submitting to your husbands as the church does to Christ. You are enacting something great and beautiful, and that's God's eternal love for his people. If that adds a little pressure to your marriage, it should. It should. You should feel the weight of that. Husbands, you should feel the weight of that, and and wives, you should too, and you should think to yourself, I can't screw this up, because I'm enacting something great, God's love for us in my marriage. And of course, we'll we'll never be perfect in that, but we struggle to approximate that throughout our lives. In his book, This Momentary Marriage, John Piper, he talks about this at length. Get that book, read it. And at one point in that book, Piper actually turns to his wife 
And he, he asks her, you know, pastors are known to do this from time to time before they preach, ask their wives about stuff. He actually asked his wife before he preached on marriage, what would you like me to say about marriage? How, what do you want me to emphasize? What do you think would be good for the, the women and the men in our church to hear? And I mean, that's a golden opportunity for a wife, right? She could have said anything. She could have said, you know, tell the husbands to be more kind to their wives. She could have said, tell husbands and wives to forgive one another often. That's important. She could have said, tell husbands and wives to work through their conflict and communicate well with each other. But she didn't say that. Here's what she said. She said, you cannot too often say that marriage is a model of Christ and the church. You cannot emphasize too much that marriage is a model of Christ and the church. That's what she wanted John Piper to emphasize. Why did she want him to emphasize that? Here's why. Because she knows that marriage is God's display of his eternal love for his people. Human marriage is God's picture of the framework of eternal marriage between God and his people. And let me just prove that to you quickly. Just take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Revelation if you could. So we started in Genesis, right? Go all the way to the other side of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. And we're going to see how God speaks about marriage in eternity. One of the things that I've noticed just studying the Bible is how, how many corollaries there are between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation. It's, it's quite a marvel. There's all these things that are spoken of concerning the Garden of Eden that get duplicated in the new heaven and the new earth in the book of Revelation. And I'll just give you some examples of those. In Genesis, there's the division of night and day. In Revelation, there's no night at all. In Genesis, there's the division of land and sea. In Revelation, there's no more sea. In Genesis, man is in a prepared garden, the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, man is in a prepared city and is surrounded by vegetation like the tree of life. In Genesis, there's a river flowing out of Eden. In Revelation, there's streets, there's a river flowing from the, from the throne of God. In Genesis, there's gold in the land. In Revelation, there's streets of gold in the city. In Genesis, there's bdellium and onyx stones. In Revelation, there's, there's all manner of precious stones. In Genesis, God walks with with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. In Revelation, God dwells forever with his people. In Genesis, there's the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation, the tree of life comes back. It comes back in the new heaven and the new earth. And we get to partake of its fruit for eternity. To all that, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, what does that have to do with marriage? We're talking about marriage here, right? Well, marriage began in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. We see marriage again in the book of Revelation, but it's not marriage between us as male and female. Instead, it's marriage between the bridegroom, Jesus, and his church. John writes about this in Revelation 19 in what's called the marriage supper of the land. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Look at verse 7, Revelation 19, verse 7. 
let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's us. We are the bride of Christ. Verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Later in Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of, he out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Later in Revelation 21, John is shown this great city up close that's bedecked in jewels and adorned with splendor. And this is the home of the bride who will live with the bridegroom Christ forever and ever and ever. Marriage is not just a temporary institution. Marriage is not just a temporary thing. It is for you and I in this world. But our marriages actually, these are an enacted parable of something greater, something eternal. Christ's love for his church that will last forever and ever and ever. Marriage is God's great display of love for eternity. What do y'all think about that? Some of you might say, that's, that's really fascinating, Pastor Tony. But to be honest, we're just trying to survive in our marriage. We're just trying to love each other as best we can. Truth be told, we don't really like each other sometimes. Truth be told, sometimes I think I shouldn't be married or I should give up my marriage. Sometimes I struggle with attraction to other people, maybe even a same-sex attraction that makes me not want to be married to my spouse. Okay, if that's you this morning, if you're here, and, and I, don't, I don't assume that every person in this room who's married has some wonderful, beautiful marriage that's an enacted parable of Christ's love for the church. But I want to give you this morning something to strive for, something to work towards, encouragement to press on in your marriage. And I'll just frame it this way. I'm going to give you today, as we close, six ways that you can honor God in your marriage. Okay? And I'll do this quick. Y'all got five minutes to do this, do you now? There's no football right now. There's no reason to get out of here. The Packers don't play till five o'clock. You got plenty of time. Six ways that you can honor God in your marriage. And, and let me say this too, if you're, for those of you who are single in this room, I want you to hear this and receive this. And I want you to help your married friends, the people in this room, to hold fast to the, to the commitments of their marriage, to hold fast to, to purity and to faith. Just like marriage in this room, you should help the singles in this room likewise to do that. In fact, I want to commission you, if you're single in this room right now, I want to commission you to help and to keep accountable the marrieds in this room to help them in their marriages. 
And by the way, that's why we do things like small group, and we don't have like the single small group and the married small group. There are things that we can learn from each other, and I want y'all to be together in a small group. I want y'all to have that, that, that demographic diversity that, that's, that's good for us. Homogeneity is boring. Embrace the differences that you have in your small group. And let's, marrieds, singles, males, females, men and women, everybody in this church, Let's commit to these things together as a church. Can we do that? Can I get an amen? I need a little encouragement now. Come on now. So here we go. Six ways to honor God in your marriage. Number one, listen up, married folks. Fulfill your vows. Fulfill your vows. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a single man. He died. He was put to death by the Nazis before he had a chance to marry his fiancée. He said this about marriage. Great advice for us as married folks. He says, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. In other words, that commitment you make, that vow you make should drive your love and your commitment to one another. Fulfill your vows. Some of you might say this morning, I don't remember my vows, Pastor Tony. I... That was 30 years ago. Well, get a copy of someone else's vows and recite them to one another and recommit to that. Here's what I typically say. I I get the privilege to officiate many weddings, and I'm thankful for that. But when I officiate a wedding, I tell the groom, do you take this woman to be your wife, to live together in the holy covenant of marriage, to love her, to comfort her, to honor her and lead her as Christ does the church in sickness and in health? to be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? If so, answer, I do. And then I turn to the bride and I say, do you take this man to be your husband, to live together in the holy covenant of marriage, to love him, to honor him, to submit to him as the church does to Christ in sickness and in health, to be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? If so, answer, I do. And I I walk them through that. One of the things that Sonia and I like to do when we go to weddings, a wedding that I'm not officiating, is when we like to hear the vows recited and we hold hands and we kind of wink and nod at each other and are reminded about our own vows that we took 19 years ago and how we're still holding fast to those. Fulfill your vows. Here's the second way to honor God in your marriage. Forgive past offenses. Forgive past offenses. Sonia and I do a fair amount of premarital counseling. We do a fair amount of marital counseling too. And I'll just tell you, I think practically speaking, this is the most important thing you need to embrace for the health of your marriage. You need to forgive your spouse. And it's 2020, right? It's the beginning of a new decade. So release your spouse from your grievances in 2019. Can we do that together? One of the things that we like to say in in marriage counseling is don't get historical with your spouse. Don't tell them you did it again, just like you did 20 years ago. Let that go. Forgive one another. When Jesus Christ forgave our sins, does he hold those over our head? Does Does he keep grievances against us? No, praise God that he doesn't. He releases us from that that obligation to to make up for it or to, to recompense for the wrong that we've done. You are forgiven. 
You are done. Well, I let you go, says Jesus, from the consequences of your sin. And so we need to do likewise in our marriages. And as a corollary to that, write this down as number three. Not just forgive your past offenses, but own your sin. Repent and forgive. You want the keys to a healthy marriage? Repent and forgive. Repent and forgive. Rinse and repeat. And do that about a thousand times. Do that about a million times before you die. That is so key to a healthy marriage. And you know what's interesting is that, you know, we're different. Have, have I mentioned that before, that men and women are different? Did y'all know that? It's as if God intentionally rigged it so that those differences would force you into situations where you would be sanctified and you would have to, to learn just how sinful you are and how much you need to change. God was really smart to do that. And, and, and men and women are different. And, and you're going to hurt each other. You're going to step on each other's toes. And you need to be quick to own your own sin. And then if you're, the, if you're the injured party in a marriage, right? Anybody ever been an injured person in a marriage? Don't raise your hand. Just, I know you have been. If you're the injured person in a situation where you've been sinned against, let me just give you some advice. Forgive. Let them go. You know why that's so important? Because the shoe's going to be on the other foot pretty soon. And you're going to want them to forgive you in the way that you forgave them. This is what Jesus modeled for us. So, so forgive Forgive your offenses and own your sin. And fourthly, learn your spouse. Learn your spouse. I'll never forget the quote by Lewis Smedes. When he said this, he said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we got married. And each of those five men has been me. If you don't get that quote, it's because you hadn't been married very long. I think my wife is on her third husband. And all three of those husbands have been me. We change over time. And that's why you need to learn your spouse. And like I said, God rigged it. God rigged it so that you would be different. And so that you would have to be sanctified. So that you would have to give grace and love to another person who is unlike you. And let me give some even more practical advice. Let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you, okay? Men in this room, listen up. Your wives will not be like you. Your, your wife will not be like you, and that's okay. You need to learn her. You need to learn her ways. You need to live with her in an understanding way, like Peter tells us. And you need to not think, why can't my wife be more like a man? You don't want her to be more like a man. And God doesn't want her to be more like a man. God has created her and empowered her as a female, and that was good. And it's good that she's different from you. So you need to learn her ways, and you need to live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. And wives, let me give you some advice too. Your, your husbands will not be like your girlfriends. They will not always be anxious to share their feelings with you, especially after a, coming home from a dog-eat-dog work environment. So you need to learn your husbands and be patient with them. Fifthly, write this down. 
This is for both marrieds and singles. Keep the marriage bed pure. Keep the marriage bed pure. Amen, church? Hebrews 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I'm your pastor. You've been warned. This is what God's word says about this. We'll talk more about sex and sexuality next week. Let me say it this way. Be like, be like Joseph. Be like Joseph in the Old Testament. Not Joseph Smith. Joseph in the Old Testament. And when sexual temptation or sexual sin comes your way, you run in the other direction. And you keep the marriage bed pure. And then finally, imitate your Savior. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And remember our Savior. But, but let, me just, let me just flesh this out just a little bit. Every person in this room, every single one of you has an opportunity to imitate Jesus in a unique way, to play the Jesus role, as Kathy Keller talks about it. Men, husbands, you play the Jesus role by loving your wife as Christ loves the church. Be like Jesus. Wives, you love your husband and you submit to him like Jesus does to God the Father. You play the Jesus role. You be like Jesus. And then singles in this room, I say, I'm not married, Pastor Tony. How do I play the Jesus role? Jesus was a single man. Did you know that? And he lived out his days as a single man waiting for his bride. And he lived a life of holiness and honor and integrity, and he wasn't afraid to rebuke married folk when he needed to. And even now, just, just if you're single in this room this morning, just, just think about this for a second. Even now, Jesus is a single man waiting on his bride. Even now, he is living in holiness and honor, waiting for the consummation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you're single, you, you play the Jesus role too. You live a life of holiness and honor and you wait and you wait and you wait and you serve God and you serve God and you serve God. Whether you're a husband, whether you're a wife or you're a single person, you have a unique opportunity right now in our world to be brave, to be holy, to be countercultural, to be different from this world. And my prayer for our church, my prayer for us as married folks and for the singles in this church is that we would be holy and honorable and please the Lord with our view and our lives of marriage. I want us to pray towards that end. Let's just bow our heads before the Lord. We're going to take communion. Our worship team is going to come forward, prepare to pass the elements. But let's not be in a hurry this morning. If you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse right now, I want you to take, take her hand, take his hand.
I want to encourage you to pray a prayer of commitment before the Lord right now. I will be faithful to my spouse. Maybe there's some unfaithfulness there. Some lack in your commitment to your spouse that you need to confess before the Lord right now. If you need to do that, then do that. And ask God for his help to honor marriage, to honor your spouse. Lord, we come before you today so thankful for the gift of marriage that you've given us. I'm thankful for Genesis 2, for Ephesians 5, for Revelation 19 and 21 that speak about marriage, speak about the eternal love that you have for us as your bride, as your church. And Jesus, we confess this morning, that you are the best husband that ever lived. And you have been good to us in ways that we can't be good to our spouse because we're tainted by sin. So thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. We want to take this time to remember right now with these these elements, your death, your sacrifice. Bless this time, Lord. Make it a, a meaningful time of worship and remembrance, I pray. Amen.